Hello, and welcome back to True Crime Cat Lawyer. I'm your host, Elise, joined by my co-host, Winston the Cat. Every other week, Winston and I will bring you a new story about a murder, disappearance, or serial killer with a special focus on cases from our hometown, the Pacific Northwest. Just a reminder, this podcast contains content of a graphic nature that might not be suitable for all listeners, including descriptions of violence, sexual assault, and crimes against animals and children. Listener discretion is advised. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the show. If you're joining us for the first time, Winston and I are so happy to have you. For the month of September, Winston and I are doing a series on missing persons in the Pacific Northwest. Our first episode of the series covered missing children from Idaho, Oregon, Washington, and British Columbia. For today's episode, we are headed to Idaho and British Columbia to cover six more missing persons cases. Some of these cases were chosen because they deserve more coverage, and others were chosen because they are so solvable. All of the cases we cover are important and deserve to be shared so the families of the missing can have answers. Please share these stories with your friends and family, and don't be afraid to call in with a tip if you have any information, no matter how small. All of the tip information will be included in our show notes for this episode. Our first case takes us to Nampa, Idaho. Zachary Brewer was born on May 20th, 1993. Zachary, who went by Zach, had a younger brother, and they were raised by a single mother, Corey Brewer. I don't have a lot of background information on Zach, but what I do know is that he liked to play basketball and he was a social butterfly who had a lot of friends. Corey worried about her sons having a positive male role model in their life. So, prior to Zach's disappearance, Corey had let Zach move in with a family friend, Javier Aguilar. According to Corey, Aguilar was a trusted family friend who came across as very kind and genuinely caring. At around 12 a.m. on August 22, 2009, Zach went to his mother's house. According to the Charlie Project website, Zach's mother said that he, quote, seemed worried about something, end quote, but Zach never told his mother what was bothering him. Instead, Zach left shortly after and Corey never saw him again. Zach's mother reported him missing, but because of Zach's age and the fact that he wasn't living with his mother at the time of his disappearance, the police believed Zach left willingly on his own. His disappearance was classified as a runaway case even though police couldn't find any reason why Zach would walk away from his life, especially at the age of just 16. There were some alleged sightings of Zach, but it doesn't appear police were ever able to confirm these sightings. Officially, 
No one has seen or heard from Zach since he went missing on August 22nd, 2009. There's one final piece of Zach's story that may or may not have something to do with his disappearance. One month before Zach went missing, Javier Aguilar was charged with three counts of lewd conduct on a child under 16. Aguilar was involved with youth sports in the community, and he used bribes and gifts with his victims, all young boys between the ages of 6 and 10. The abuse occurred between 2000 and 2005, and police believe there were at least three or four other victims. Apparently, Zach was the one who provided evidence of the sexual abuse to police. He was also going to testify against Aguilar at his trial, but Zach disappeared before he could give that testimony. A material witness warrant was issued for Zach in February of 2010, but police were unable to locate him. Aguilar was convicted of all charges and sentenced to 21 years in prison. Sadly, Aguilar would only serve a few years before dying in prison in 2014. Unfortunately, there's not a lot of information out there about Zach's case, so I wasn't able to find anything to confirm whether Aguilar was questioned about Zach's disappearance. It was also unclear to me whether Aguilar knew that Zach would be testifying against him. The circumstances of Aguilar's death in prison are also unknown, but one thing we know for sure is that if Aguilar had any information about Zach's disappearance, it died with him. Please check our show notes for information on how you can provide a tip if you have any information on Zach's disappearance. We're staying in Idaho for the next case, Tina Finley. Tina was born on August 25th, 1962. Tina was raised on the Coeur d'Alene Reservation, one of seven children. Like many Native children, Tina grew up in foster homes, usually with non-Native families. At the age of 14, Tina ran away from one of her foster homes. She hitchhiked to Seattle, then went to California. When she was 17, she called her Uncle Felix, who bought her a bus ticket from San Jose back to Coeur d'Alene. Tina later moved in with her Uncle Felix, who was essentially her father figure. As you can tell, Tina didn't have an easy upbringing. Her family was split up because of alcoholism, which created significant childhood drama. It's also believed that Tina was sexually abused in at least one of her foster homes. With this background in mind, let's talk about the night Tina was last seen. Tina was last seen on March 7, 1988, on the Coeur d'Alene Reservation. That night, Tina played pool at a bar in Plumer and then went to a birthday party at the Circle H Saloon. An unnamed male acquaintance gave Tina a ride from the saloon and dropped her off near the tracks on a back road to the Plumer housing project. According to police, this was about a quarter mile from Tina's home, but Tina was never seen again. Tina's older sister reported her missing two weeks after her disappearance. Tina's family wasn't initially concerned when they hadn't seen or heard from Tina for a few days because Tina was known to disappear for about a week at a time. But family became concerned when they realized Tina hadn't arranged to have her welfare checks deposited anywhere and she left her makeup behind. Her family knew this wasn't like Tina, so they reported her missing. As they do with nearly all missing persons cases, police began delving into Tina's life. At the time of her disappearance, Tina was doing well. 
She had several jobs, and she planned on enrolling in classes at North Idaho College. She played in a pool tournament on the night she was last seen, and by all accounts, she was a phenomenal pool player. Investigators eventually found Tina's purse, ID, and shoes along the side of Highway 95. Once these items were found, police believed they were dealing with a case of foul play. They searched an abandoned car and house near the area where Tina was last seen, and they ended up finding several items belonging to Tina, although they never publicly divulged what was found. In yet another later search, police found Tina's jacket, but still no sign of Tina. Detectives tracked down the unnamed male who gave Tina a ride home on the night she went missing. This man passed a polygraph, and police don't consider him to be a suspect in Tina's case. Police have released that they have two suspects, but neither has been named publicly. Police believe Tina met these two men at the birthday party, and both men failed their polygraph tests. Unfortunately, there doesn't seem to be enough evidence to charge one or both men in Tina's disappearance. Police believe Tina was abducted after she was dropped off near her home. In 1991, divers searched a small pond looking for Tina's body, but they didn't find anything. Later, in 1992, a road worker found a grave-shaped pit at McCroskey State Park, about 30 minutes from where Tina was last seen and 11 minutes from where Tina attended the birthday party at Circle H Saloon. Police believe this grave was intended for Tina, and whoever took her may have been interrupted before they could bury her there. This was the last update in Tina's case. The FBI is offering a $10,000 reward for any information in Tina's disappearance. If you have any information on Tina's case, please contact the Benoit County Sheriff's Office at 208-245-2555 or the FBI Salt Lake City Field Office at 801-579-6636. Our next case takes us to Vancouver, B.C. 24-year-old Chelsea Poorman went out to dinner with her sister on September 6, 2020. After dinner, the two women went to a bar and then to a friend's house in the early morning hours of September 7th. Chelsea left the downtown Vancouver apartment almost immediately after she arrived, and she hasn't been seen since. Chelsea did call her sister around 1 a.m. and told her that she was with, quote, a new bay, end quote. This was the last contact Chelsea had with anyone. Her phone was turned off after this call. A missing persons report was filed on September 8th, but police didn't issue a public notice about Chelsea's disappearance until 10 days later. Chelsea's mother, Sheila, told the media that police didn't review any surveillance footage from the area Chelsea was last seen in. Sheila has been very vocal and active in the search for her daughter. According to Sheila, Chelsea moved from Regina to Burnaby in July 2020 to live with her boyfriend. Shortly after this move, Chelsea was out of touch with her family for nearly a week. This was so out of character that her family actually reported her missing at that time. Chelsea eventually got in touch with her mom and told her that she'd lost her phone, which is why she hadn't called her in nearly a week. So, it's possible that police weren't as concerned or invested in Chelsea as a missing person because she'd gotten into contact with her family before. 
but Sheila really tried her best to keep Chelsea's name in the public. Sheila explained that her daughter was, quote, vulnerable, end quote, and she believed someone had taken advantage of Chelsea. You see, Chelsea was in a significant car accident in 2014. As a result, Chelsea had rods placed in her leg and arm and wore a brace on her left leg, as well as a lifted shoe on her right foot. Sheila said Chelsea walks with a limp and can't fully bend her left arm. She also said it would be difficult for Chelsea to walk without her brace, making it easy to overpower Chelsea. Chelsea was very active on social media, but after she went missing, there wasn't any activity on her cell phone, her social media, or her bank accounts. Vancouver police reclassified Chelsea from a missing person to a homicide case in order to gain access to greater resources. According to the Vancouver PD, they've interviewed several people, obtained cell phone and banking records from Chelsea's accounts, and they conducted an extensive video canvas, contrary to what Sheila told the media. The police department claims that the investigation into Chelsea's disappearance remains very active, despite the fact that there hasn't been any updates over the past year that she's been missing. Chelsea's dad, Michael Kiernan, has spent all of 2021 thus far living in his van and driving around Western Canada looking for Chelsea. Michael has driven from Saskatchewan to Alberta, handing out missing persons flyers. The family has hired a private investigator, and there's a $20,000 reward for information on Chelsea's disappearance. But so far, nothing has come from either effort. If you have any information on the disappearance of Chelsea Poorman, please contact the Vancouver Police at 604-717-2500. We're staying in British Columbia for the next case, but we're moving to Prince George, a little over eight hours north of Vancouver. Helen Frost was born on October 17, 1952, in England. Helen's father, Dennis, was a Green Beret in the British Commando Brigade and worked on the docks in London during World War II. After the war, Dennis moved the family to Nanaimo, B.C. in 1956. He worked for the city of Nanaimo as a sweeper operator. Helen had an older sister, Sandy, who described their parents and home life as quote-unquote stable. Dennis and Daphne, Helen's mother, were married for 67 years, and by all accounts, Dennis and Daphne were good parents. Helen moved to Prince George in 1969 when she was 16 or 17. Her sister soon followed, and they both shared an apartment with a woman named Darlene and her newborn baby. It wasn't exactly clear why Helen and Sandy moved out at an early age, but Sandy described herself and Helen as rebellious and headstrong so it's possible these characteristics played a role. In any case, the sisters were living on their own. Helen had a few jobs in Prince George, including a busser and a gas station painter. Helen was described as a, quote, private person, shy and introverted, end quote. But Helen did have a boyfriend named Stefan Grumper, who ended up getting Helen pregnant. Helen gave birth to a baby girl on May 13, 1970, at a, quote, home for unwed mothers, end quote, in Kamloops. There was a three-month gap between her daughter's birth and Helen's return to Prince George in August of 1970. 
It's unclear what Helen was doing, where she was, or who she might have been with during that three-month period. While we don't know what Helen did during this time, we do know that she returned to Prince George without her newborn baby. There were conflicting reports about whose idea it was to have Helen put her baby up for adoption. It was either a welfare worker who believed adoption was the best fit for the baby, or it was Helen's boyfriend who allegedly told her he would stay with her if she gave the baby up for adoption. Either way, Helen had given up her baby for adoption, and sadly, Stefan Grumper broke up with Helen anyway. Sandy would later tell police that Helen tried to get her baby back after she returned to Prince George, but she was unsuccessful. Despite the breakup and losing her baby, things seemed to be going well for Helen prior to her disappearance. According to Sandy, Helen was learning to accept the loss of her baby. On October 13, 1970, around 8 p.m., Sandy came home after having coffee with a friend. Helen decided to go for a walk, and she asked Sandy if she wanted to come with her. Sandy declined, something she'd later regret, because it was cold out and she was tired. Helen left the apartment around 8.20 and never came back. Sandy reported Helen missing on October 15th. When asked to explain the delayed reporting, Sandy told police she'd assumed that Helen had stayed the night at a friend's house. Police began investigating the disappearance. They interviewed Stefan Grumper and noted nothing suspicious about his interview. Investigators learned that Helen and Sandy were frequent hitchhikers, and they lived about nine blocks from Highway 16 and 97. Highway 97 is infamously known as the Highway of Tears. Was it possible that Helen was a victim of whatever killer or killers were preying on women in this area? Here's what police learned about Helen. Although she'd run away in the past, police didn't think she was a runaway this time because she'd left her clothes, money, and ID. They learned that Helen wasn't involved in drugs, but she was possibly suicidal. I think when Sandy offered this explanation of Helen being suicidal, police latched onto it as the most likely scenario given what Helen was going through right before she went missing. The RCMP would later say, quote, There is not enough evidence in the case to determine whether Helen committed suicide or is a murder victim, end quote. The RCMP don't believe Helen ran away to start a new life based on everything she left behind but they have said that Helen's case is not a cold case and they're actively looking into new leads, although there haven't been any since Helen disappeared. Sandy has been her sister's biggest advocate. She even tried to add Helen's name to the official Highway of Tears list, but the RCMP declined to do so as Helen's case didn't meet their criteria to be a Highway of Tears case. In spite of the heartache and pain Helen's family has dealt with since her disappearance, in January 2018, Helen's daughter that she'd given up for adoption was able to track Sandy down. For the sake of Sandy and Helen's daughter, please contact the Prince George Detachment RCMP at 1-250-561-3300 or the Canada Crime Stoppers at one 800 222 8477 with any tips or information 
on the disappearance of Helen Frost. Our final case from the BC region is the disappearance of Immaculate Mary Basil, who went by Mackie. Mackie was born in December 1985, and she was named in honor of the Virgin Mary. She was one of eight children. Early on in Mackie's childhood, her family life was stable. Both of her parents worked steady jobs, and there was always food on the table. Unfortunately, the stability would end after Mackie's father had an affair and left the family. Mackie's mother started drinking and eventually forgot all about her kids. The oldest sibling, Peter, started taking care of his younger brothers and sisters until social services got involved and placed the younger kids into the foster care system. Like Tina Finley's family, Mackie and her siblings were placed primarily in non-Indigenous homes. Mackie remained close to two of her sisters, Ida and Crystal, and the three were placed together in several group homes. The three girls would often hitchhike or save up bus money so they could go visit their older brother, Peter. And unfortunately, just like Tina Finley, Mackie and her sister Ida were sexually abused and physically abused by their foster parents. Despite her traumatic and awful childhood, Mackie was described as a, quote, beautiful and caring person with an infectious laugh and a bubbly personality, end quote. Mackie eventually started dating an unnamed man, and the two had a son together named Jameson. Mackie remained close to Ida and Crystal. The three called each other daily. Mackie had several jobs, including as a receptionist at the local school and a housekeeper in her community. Peter, Mackie's oldest brother, described Mackie as a, quote, introvert who rarely partied. She didn't drink or do drugs, and she was selective of the people she spent time with, end quote. That's why Peter was surprised when Mackie asked him to watch Jameson while she went to a house party near the Couche Reserve in Fort St. James on June 12, 2013. The house party was about a 20-minute walk from Mackie's house. Peter would later tell police that Mackie seemed troubled that evening. She also took a bottle of vodka and her iPod with her before she left for the party. Whatever was bothering Mackie, if anything actually was, she didn't share it with Peter or anyone else. Mackie was reported missing on June 13th or 14th after she failed to come pick up her son, Jameson. Mackie was a devoted mother. There's no way she would take off and leave her son behind. The Fort St. James RCMP was in charge of the investigation. An extensive ground search took place over the span of four days in the area Mackie was last known to be in, which was not the house party she attended on June 12th. Police found out that Mackie had left the party that night and went to a cabin with two other people from the party. On their way to the cabin, their truck got stuck in the mud and they couldn't get it out, so the three decided to walk to the cabin instead. Mackie got frustrated by all of this, and she told the two other people that she was going to walk back to the location of the house party. Mackie was last seen walking along the Leo Tanazul Forest Service Road in the mid-morning hours of June 13th. When the RCMP interviewed the two men Mackie was supposed to go to the cabin with that night, they told investigators that Mackie got a ride from someone else. According to the RCMP, both men were given polygraphs and were cooperative with investigators. 
What I find interesting about what the two men told police is that the area Mackie was last seen in is a largely forested area with no cell phone service. So Mackie couldn't have called anyone for help or to come pick her up. It really makes me wonder if these men were actually ruled out as suspects by police. In any event, police eventually stopped searching and Mackie's case has since gone cold. The RCMP doesn't believe that Mackie was abducted by a stranger given the remote location, but there really isn't much for them to go on. They don't have a crime scene and none of Mackie's possessions have ever been found. The RCMP interviewed Mackie's ex-boyfriend, the father of her son, and he told them that he and Mackie had broken up in 2012. The reason for the breakup has never been publicly disclosed. But according to investigators, Mackie's ex-boyfriend had an alibi and he is not a suspect in her disappearance. The community continues to search for Mackie in an effort to bring her home. In 2016, Peter asked the chief and council of the Tlazden First Nation to post a $20,000 reward. Unfortunately, there haven't been any updates since the reward was posted. Please check out our show notes for information on how to submit a tip regarding Mackie's disappearance. For the final case of this episode, we head back to Idaho, specifically Idaho County. This is the case of Terrence Woods Jr. Terrence grew up in Capitol Heights, Maryland. Terrence attended American International University in London. He lived in the UK for five years working in the TV industry. Terrence was a researcher slash production assistant for Raw, which is a TV production company based out of London. Terrence worked on shows like The Voice UK and Saving Africa's Elephants. According to friends and family, Terrence was intelligent, kind, and loving. He traveled all over the world and was passionate about his work. In the fall of 2018, Terrence was hired as a production assistant for the hit show Gold Rush. Prior to this job offer, Terrence had moved back home to Maryland after he left London. Terrence was scheduled to start the job on October 1st. He would be filming with a 12-person crew on location at the Penman Mine in the abandoned, rugged countryside of Idaho County. Filming was set to end the second week of November. On September 30th, 2018, Terrence Sr. dropped his son off at the airport. From October 1st through October 4th, Terrence was in Montana. According to Terrence Sr., his son was in good spirits and even sent scenery pictures to Terrence Sr. Terrence sent his dad a text at 10.58 p.m. on October 4th, letting him know that he'd arrived at the hotel in Idaho. At 5.44 a.m. on October 5th, Terrence texted his dad to let him know that he would be coming home early on October 10th instead of early November. Terrence didn't provide any explanation as to why he would be coming home before the production was over. Unbeknownst to Terrence Sr., his son sent an email to his raw superiors saying that he wanted to see his mother Valerie. Valerie was living in Maryland and she had some health issues. Terrence Sr. texted his son back at 3 p.m., but it's unclear if Terrence ever received this text as the film crew was shooting in a remote area without cell coverage. 
The remainder of Terrence's day on October 5th was unknown to his parents until October 6th. That's when Valerie and Terrence Sr. learned that Terrence had gone missing in the evening hours of October 5th. Terrence's disappearance was reported to the Idaho County Sheriff's Office at 6.41 p.m. Unfortunately, the search for Terrence didn't start until the morning of October 6th because the location was too dark to search the night before. A six-day search was conducted with ground searchers on foot and ATVs, as well as helicopters with infrared technology. It should be noted that almost 80% of Idaho County land is part of a national forest and is sparsely populated with less than 16,000 residents. Now, let me go back and fill in the missing hours of Terrence's day on October 5th. Terrence and the rest of the 12-person crew were on-site filming in the rugged terrain of Oro Grande. Terrence asked one of the local women, who was serving as a transporter, to escort him to use the bathroom. Before the woman could respond, Terrence dropped his radio and took off running down a steep cliff. Terrence's co-workers were shocked, and some of them took off running after him. The terrain was rough and unpredictable, but the crew would later tell police that Terrence was running extremely fast down the hillside. There were rumors about Terrence's state of mind during the shoot. According to the 911 call log, quote, Terrence had been having a really hard time emotionally and had a mental breakdown earlier today, end quote. According to at least one article I read, the 911 caller wasn't a member of Raw's TV crew. So it's unclear if this was one of the local transporters or possibly someone else who came into contact with Terrence that day. I also read about allegations of a quote, uneasy dynamic, end quote, with Terrence and the rest of the crew. There were some questions about Terrence's behaviors, and some of his coworkers said that he was, quote, a little bit weird. End quote. Terrence Sr. is emphatic that Terrence didn't have any mental health problems or communication problems, and both he and Valerie have denied ever seeing Terrence exhibit any erratic behavior. After Terrence's disappearance, Raw TV flew Terrence Sr. and Valerie from Maryland to Idaho to meet with Simon Gee, the associate producer for Gold Rush and two other raw executives at the Idaho County Sheriff's Office. This meeting did not go well. Gee told Terrence's parents that Terrence was a quote-unquote disappointment, and he didn't live up to Gee's expectations. Valerie and Terrence Sr. thought that Gee was cold, and they don't feel like raw was telling them the whole story. They're skeptical about the witnesses' version of events. Terrence was the only Black crew member, and his parents learned that the raw TV environment was toxic, according to some former employees. Raw, of course, has pushed back on this, denying the claims and stating that Terrence was a well-liked and valued member of their production team. Two weeks after Terrence went missing, Raw TV released a statement to the media, quote, we can confirm that Terrence Woods, a member of one of our production teams, went missing on Friday, October 5th in Oro Grande, Nez Pierce National Forest in Idaho. All inquiries regarding the status of the search should be directed to the Idaho County Sheriff's Office, end quote. 
Obviously, Terrence's family wasn't very happy about Ra's approach to his case. Valerie sent emails to Sam Maynard about hiring a private investigator. Maynard, who was Ra's EVP of U.S. Factual Programming at the time, declined to hire a PI, telling Terrence's mother that it could muddy the waters of the police investigation. Police concluded fairly early on that Terrence wanted to leave his life. They believed Terrence either had a panic attack or a mental breakdown and possibly went off into the woods to commit suicide. Naturally, family and friends don't agree. The family has hired two private investigators, but so far, no significant new evidence has been uncovered. Since Terrence's parents met with Raw TV executives, there hasn't been any further contact between the parties. Both Valerie and Terrence Sr. believe Ra is, quote, hiding the truth about their son's disappearance, end quote. Terrence's sister, Sharnia, echoed those same sentiments, saying that her brother wasn't the type to just run off, especially in an unfamiliar area. Terrence's case received renewed coverage as a result of the Black Lives Matter movement in early 2020. Both Deadline and Vice published articles that were highly critical of the Idaho County Sheriff's investigation and Raw's response and involvement with Terrence's case. When Raw was contacted by Vice for comment on Terrence's case, this is the statement that Raw provided to Vice. Quote, Terrence was a popular figure at Raw. He was a well-liked and valued member of the production team, and his disappearance deeply affected us all. Terrence went missing in a remote, densely wooded, and mountainous area in Idaho that was particularly challenging to search. From the outset, our location team was actively involved in the search for Terrence, and we put a great deal of effort and resource into trying to locate him, which included flying his mother and father, along with two of Rod's executives, to Idaho to help with the investigations being carried out by the sheriff's office. We have the deepest sympathy for Terrence's family and friends. It is truly heartbreaking that Terrence has not been found, and we continue to hope that he will be. In such a tragic case, there will inevitably be speculation about his disappearance, which is neither helpful or fair to Terrence, his family, or the crew who worked so hard to try and help. The thorough police investigation has found no evidence to support any of the speculative claims, and this remains a tragedy. The sheriff's office has acknowledged we did all that we were able to do to help and went well beyond any reasonable expectation in the search. We will maintain regular contact with the Idaho County Sheriff's Office, and the case remains open until it is resolved, end quote. So, for the most part, Ross' statement does more to highlight its own cooperation with the investigation rather than calling attention to Terrence's case and asking people to be on the lookout for Terrence. The Idaho County Sheriff's Office was also contacted by Vice. Here's what their statement said, quote, Terrence Woods is still missing and his case is still open, but not active. We follow up on any new information, of which there has been very little, but do not have anyone actively searching for Terrence. There's no specific amount of time a missing person case remains active. It remains open as long as the person is missing, but it is closed regarding man hours spent searching when we have done all we can do. End quote. Honestly, this statement kind of infuriates me. 
Basically, it sounds like police have given up on the search for Terrence and are waiting for Terrence to either show up one day or they're waiting until his body is found. The fact that they, they have no one looking for Terrence for the past three years is extremely upsetting. I can only hope that someone, somewhere, will find Terrence and give his family the answers they deserve. If you have any information or tips to provide regarding the disappearance of Terrence Woods, please check out our show notes for the link to the Find Terrence Woods Instagram page run by Terrence's family. For more information on Terrence's case, check out the six-part podcast series, Into the Woods. Thank you for listening to the second episode in our Missing Persons series. Winston and I hope you'll join us for the final episode on September 30th. We'll be covering six cases from Oregon and Washington. Please check out our show notes for contact information on how you can submit a tip to law enforcement. And please continue to share these stories. The families of Tina Finley, Zach Brewer, Mackie Basil, Helen Frost, Terrence Woods, and Chelsea Porman all deserve to know where their loved ones are and bring them home. Thank you for listening to today's episode. Please subscribe and leave a review if you like the show. You can email case suggestions or comments to truecrimecatlawyer at gmail.com. The links for our social media pages are included in the show notes. You can find our discussion group on Facebook by searching for True Crime Cat Lawyer in the group section. And if you want more content, head over to Patreon to join one of our available tiers. You can get monthly mini and bonus episodes as well as early access to our main episodes. Finally, if you're interested in learning more about my co-host, you can check out her Instagram at WinstonTheCatPDX. Thanks again for listening and stay tuned for our next episode.